on these three lives. Welcome, listeners, to the 36th chapter of the QAnon Anonymous podcast, the Elite Satanic Parties episode. As always, we are your hosts, Jake Rokotansky, Julian Field, and Travis View. This week, we are exploring how the elites hobnob and slob Satan's knob. Julian has prepared a little history of the Bohemian Club, accused by many of being a New World Order organization that includes yearly human sacrifice and devil worship at their Bohemian Grove getaways. Travis has prepared a little peek into QAnon's connecting of the satanic ritual dots, with the help, of course, of their usual blurry JPEGs. Finally, Jake has written a story that involves Sean Connery visiting the Bohemian Grove. I'm sure it will be fine and won't get our boy cancelled. But before we get bright red and furious... QAnon News. First up, Julian Assange arrested in London. Damn. Yeah, the yeah. only wow. the only big famous Julian is now yeah. he's fucked. Yeah, the White Wizard has returned yeah. to Mordor. Yeah, he looked like <laughs> shit. But <laughs> he did. Yeah. After hiding out in the Ecuadorian embassy in London for seven years, Julian Assange, the controversial editor of WikiLeaks, was arrested on April 11th. The same day, U.S. Department of Justice unsealed a year-old indictment against Assange. Prosecutors say that Assange worked with Chelsea Manning in an attempt to crack the password of a classified government network. British authorities have received a request to extradite Assange to the United States. He is expected to appear at the hearing on May 2nd. Uh, many in the QAnon community welcome the development, believing that Assange will now reveal some information that will help validate their theories. Travis, you were saying that this is absurd because why wouldn't he reveal it before? Yeah, yeah. I was like, I, I, I hate, I, this doesn't make any sense. Be like, oh, his whole thing is uh, sort of publishing secret leaked information that he receives. And uh, why why would he like hold back until after he is arrested? Doesn't yeah. quite make sense. Also, I mean, he's been acting, I mean, during the 2016 election, he essentially acted as like, a kind of wing of the Republican Party well, yeah. in the way that he disseminated information, took it in and chose what he published. Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. And, uh, you know, what What I had some QAnon people explain to me after I... <laughs> of had, course, of course. After I said this theory, it's like, <laughs> it's like no, what, what's going to happen is that is that Julian Assange, through his testimony or something, he's going to reveal the source of the DNC hack, basically. Right. And the the implication is that it's not going to be uh, Russia, as it was uh, explained that it was in the um, course of the Mueller investigation, but was, in fact, um, basically Seth Rich. Seth was, was Rich! It, it was basically the hit. <laughs> it was Seth Rich this whole time. Of course. So so, so they're saying, like, well, he can't, obviously can't reveal his source, but now that he's arrested, he can, he can do that now for yeah. some reason. Yeah, they're saying that, that oh, well, under oath when he's forced to testify. Yeah, they think what this is is that Barr is extracting a Assange. Yes. They, yes. they think that this is a move by the by the Department of Justice to get Assange <laughs> out of the embassy where, by the way, he was smearing shit on the walls. I yep. don't... Like, I, that's why? not a... That's Wait, a thing. He, did he? Yeah, that's one you, of the reasons they said they... Ca- the guys who kicked him out, they, yeah. were, they were like, oh, yeah, he was smearing feet. He was being very disrespectful is, to, is. The, to okay, the room. Okay, but my, I'm sorry, but like, who, why would you smear feces on the wall? But here, my that conspiracy theory sense. is that he was trying to be as unpleasant as possible to pressure the uh, Ecuadorian uh, embassy to kick him out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, honestly, if I was living uh, with a roommate and they started smearing their feces on the yeah. wall, yeah, that'd probably be the last month they'd be uh, paying rent in this apartment. Right. Yeah. <laughs> QAnon Believer runs for Congress unopposed in his Republican primary. Fantastic. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> 
So this was first reported by A.G. Gankarski for the publication FloridaPolitics.com. Uh, Matthew Lusk, a Florida bookseller who launched his House campaign for Florida's 5th Congressional District last month, appears to be the first QAnon follower to run for federal office. In an interview for FloridaPolitics.com, Lusk says, quote, I belong to no secret societies or clubs. Q is one of my issues because it's definitely a leak from high places. I follow Q, but I don't know who or what Q is. A sponge. I follow something I have no idea about. Um, this, this, by the way, is supposed to make me look intelligent. Lusk is an unconventional Republican candidate for many reasons. On his website, he advocates for the elimination of alimony, the federal decriminalization of cocaine, and reparations for people who are affected by the legacy of slavery in the U.S. So, first of all, he's one of those, like, dad's rights guys. Like, he's, like, sick of paying fucking money to that idiot woman who yeah. wants to keep the kids uh-huh. <laughs> what he wants to spend that money on, on cocaine, cocaine. Yeah, yeah, he yeah, he's very cocaine. clear he also wasn't it legalized prostitution <laughs> yeah I, th- I so think so he's yeah. like listen all this money that's going to my kids fucking college fund could be <laughs> i could be blowing it on coke and hookers also q is real <laughs> yeah q is real uh is leg one of the campaign uh, leg two is coke and strippers <laughs> i mean honestly this guy will probably get elected and he's probably our next president so. yeah Lusk is running unopposed for the Republican primary in his district, but he will have a steep road to defeat the Democratic incumbent, Congressman Al Lawson. Lusk's interview with FloridaPolitics.com is littered with bonkers quotes from the congressional candidate, which I will now have Jake read. I can't imagine the globalist deep state not putting up a challenger in the primary. I can't wait to grind them into sawdust. What? <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ! I can't wait to feed them into the wood chipper, chipper like in Fargo. Yeah, and watch the watch bloody pieces of their brain be ejected (laughs) out. I can't wait to shoot them into space and then fucking laser explode them. He then goes on to say, "The primary will be a bigger sword fight, but I don't see a problem overcoming either." Suggesting that he does have a pretty big sword. I'm a Dapper Dan man. I don't like palmade, and I'm not going to ride a bicycle to a motorcycle race. I consider libertarians and reformers to be conservative. What? You'll see I have knowledge once I flesh out <laughs> lusk2020.com. Uh, as soon as I can hire uh, some sort of millennial, possibly my uh, nephew, to put together this webpage, I swear to God, there's going to be policy all over it. And he goes, uh... One reason why the devil hates Christians so much is because true believers have is because true believers have guts. He's saying the devil hates Christians. I mean, that is you're going to have trouble uh, proving that, buddy. The only thing to fear is God. One really has to risk their earthly life to make a change in today's political sphere. Some of my issues have gotten people arkansided. So, just for the record, I am not suicidal. Or accident prone. Wait, what's the Arkansas? That means that you've been suicided by Hillary Clinton. Yeah, it means that. You know, so, uh, you know, Hillary and Bill Clinton are oh. Arkansas natives, and so they believe that you know yeah. Bill and Hillary Clinton are all, all offing people to make it look like a suicide. This is called Arkansas. Right. And I had yeah. I had a liberal friend who was all about how the the fucking the Clinton body yeah, count Clinton was like insane. And then I was like, okay, cool. Just show me like any kind of proof. And it was like some fucking weird web. <laughs> I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's always like a weird like JPEG, like a JPEG list. <laughs> like, that just on, has man. like kind of pictures on the side, like kind of looks like a GeoCities page. It's just like a twirling 3D GIF that says Hillary did it. 
But here's the thing. Like, where are our fucking, like, young millennial, uh, like, contenders here? Like, you should be able to handily beat uh, somebody who's running on the QAnon uh, slash cocaine slash strippers uh, policies. At least get, you know, beat him for the Republican primary, you think. Yeah. Yeah. But he's not really going to win against the Democrat, right? No, he's not. Yeah. So it doesn't seem... I mean, even if, like, some millennial... I mean, no no millennial wants to be humiliated in their first race. So that's why this guy... With uh, his, you know, the brain genius that he is, he can't feel that pain because he doesn't really understand it exists at all. Yep, and he's probably going to win. He's like, I'm putting my life on the line here, guys. If, if this isn't brave, I don't know what is. The History of Bohemian Grove with Julian Field. Max Weber, a late 1800s and early 1900s sociologist, once attempted to explain the role of private men's clubs in the United States. In America, mere money in itself purchases power, but not social honor. In America, the old tradition respected the self-made man more than the heir, and the avenue to social honor consisted in affiliation with a genteel fraternity in a distinguished college. At present time, affiliation with a distinguished club is essential above all else. Here, the equality of gentlemen prevailed absolutely. (laughs) He who did not succeed in joining was no gentleman. Philosopher and sociologist Peter Martin Phillips clarified the modern role of these elite gentlemen's clubs in a 1994 dissertation. A contemporary elite private men's club has a membership that is made up of men from the higher socioeconomic strata in society and others with intellectual or artistic qualities deemed important by men of wealth. Elite men's clubs are an urban phenomenon that need an adequate population base from which to draw men with similar interests. Elite men's clubs tend to be introspectively oriented. Major activities, events, and interactions tend to occur within club boundaries, primarily for the members' and guests' own self-gratification. Elite men's clubs tend to establish traditions and maintain an internal club culture to which new members receive some form of indoctrination before or after joining. Finally, elite men's clubs offer their members a safe sanctum that meets personal needs away from less ordered environments. A man is an aristocrat within the confines of his club. He has support of staff to wait on him and other aristocrats with similar interests for stimulating interaction. An elite men's club is a system of ordered civility in what is perceived as an otherwise chaotic and disorderly world. So one of the most infamous and controversial of these elite gentlemen's clubs is the Bohemian Club and their Monte Rio, California venue known as Bohemian Grove. So how the hell does the word Bohemian even apply here? Well, in 1872, the club is founded by a group of men who fancy themselves artists. The majority of them are journalists, and it all starts with a series of loosely organized Sunday breakfasts at the home of James Bauman, who writes for the San Francisco Chronicle. They stink up the place with cheap cigars and partake in loud, spirited debate. This eventually gets to Bowman's wife, who kindly asks the fellows to get the fuck out of her home. (laughs) So the Bohemian Club rents a locale from a now-defunct fraternity, the Jolly Corks. I'm pretty sure they were alcoholics, and and they lost their place, you know, as alcoholics (laughs) tend to do. (laughs) At some point, the boys set up some rules. No women, no rich people, and no publishers. Six years later, the group has burgeoned to nearly a hundred members, and they gather in a redwood forest to send off Henry Edwards, a stage actor and bohemian club founder who is moving to New York to make it big. 
After the club gets a taste of the great, drunken, lantern-lit outdoors, the sleepover becomes a yearly fixture. Fast forward 15 years and several moonlit blowjobs later, the fellas settle on the Sonoma County location that would become permanent. Six years after that, in 1899, the Bohemian Club purchases the land. Journalist and writer William Henry Irwin describes the location. You come upon it suddenly. One step and its glory is over you. There is no perspective. You cannot get far away enough from one of the trees to see it as a whole. There they stand, a world of height above you, their pinnacles hidden by their topmost fringes of branches or lost in the sky. So over the next 67 years, club members would make 28 purchases of land amounting to a total of 2,712 acres. In 1910, they install a new office in San Francisco. It costs them a million dollars to build it, 19 million in today's dollars. It is a four-story building that includes Corinthian columns, a lounge, a billiard room, a dining room, a wine room, a library, a theater, and lavish living quarters. Many attribute the Bohemian Club's success to its unique combination of city-based club and natural retreat grounds. Members purchase bonds and take out a loan, formalizing their arrangement. By this point, the club and Grove have already gone through profound transformation, ceding central control to a group of businessmen who bankroll the expansion. Artists slowly become decoration and entertainment for the rich and powerful core members. These lowly bohemians are classified as associate members and do the brunt of the production work and event organizing. In exchange, they pay lower fees. Soon the club's entrance fee and monthly dues grow fivefold. By 1920, there are 2,000 members. The club has somehow managed to not miss a single year of sweet partying, including during both world wars. This means that while these wealthy politicians, generals, and business magnates were jacking off to King Arthur, they were also sending tens of thousands of people to their deaths. By 1929, just as the Great Depression kicks off, members decide to build more permanent structures in the Grove. Cabins, clubhouses, tent platforms. While the country starves, these men are busy building the biggest teenage treehouse in the world. Keep in mind that even the tents have chairs, mahogany dressers, and sterling silver tableware. They also include Japanese servants in white uniforms with gold braid. Camps have pianos installed for impromptu sing-alongs. This shit makes glamping look impoverished. In 1934, San Francisco workers kick off a general strike. A hundred thousand union workers walk off their jobs. This alarms many of the San Francisco businessmen in the Bohemian Club, men who had spent that very summer attempting to crush various strikes. The next year, someone sets several fires near the Grove. The club is pissed and beefs up security. They flex their government and state connections to investigate. Whatever comes of the incident, the club opts to never mention it again. During the Great Depression, the club continues to publish a list of notable members. This, combined with all the press they court around their expansion, pisses a lot of regular people off. After all, the country is experiencing record-high unemployment and poverty. The club's response to this awkward situation is to become more secretive, and by the 1950s, this becomes an official policy. In 1942, a Manhattan Project planning meeting occurs at the River Clubhouse. Oppenheimer is in attendance alongside scientists and high-ranking military officials. Members often show off to new guests and tell them about the meeting, which led to the creation of the atom bomb. It would soon after be used to obliterate two Japanese cities and kill approximately 200,000 people. In the 20th century, a list of the most prominent members of the Bohemian Club reads like a who's who of Republican heavy hitters. 
Ronald Reagan, George Bush, Gerald Ford, Richard Nixon, Henry Kissinger, William F. Buckley, Calvin Coolidge, Dick Cheney, Clint Eastwood, Dwight D. Eisenhower, Barry Goldwater, the Rockefellers, Teddy Roosevelt, Donald Rumsfeld, Karl Rove, Bing Crosby, and deep state pimp number one, Hoover, who ran the FBI for decades. Members also include industrialists, magnets, and other power brokers. By the late 80s, about 73% of members are in business and legal professions, 9% are academics, 8% are government and military, and only 6% are artists. Between 91 and 93, 273 corporations had directors present at the summer encampment. This represents nearly a quarter of the top 1,144 corporations in the United States. Richard Milhouse Nixon attended the Grove a few times, but had some sharp words for the goings-on, words which, unfortunately for him, were recorded on tape. Instead of playing the tape, um, because it's really low quality, I mean, you can look it up on YouTube if you'd like, we're going to have Jake read in the voice of the eternal Nixon. The upper class in San Francisco is that way. The Bohemian Grove, which I attend from time to time, it is the most faggy goddamn thing you could ever imagine with that San Francisco crowd. I can't shake hands with anybody from San Francisco. Decorators. They gotta do something. But you don't have to glorify it. De decorators? Is he saying that gay people are all decorators? I don't know. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Probably d decorating his chest with jizz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's just Nixon Jeez. being his real self there. Uh, also, please don't cancel us for, you know, Jake was quoting that word. So although the club is supposed to have, quote, weaving spiders come not here as their motto, a deeper study of this no business rule by Peter Martin Phillips led him to conclude that, quote, the club is a highly interconnected, socially-based reflection of American business society, and that business actually occurs there frequently. Uh, just a quick note here, Peter Martin Phillips wrote an amazing dissertation on the Grove and uh, the, the culture around it, and uh, I, I, you know, if you like 70-page, uh, incredibly well-researched and, and uh, you know, bizarrely academic things, then I look it up. But either way, um, thank you, Mr. Phillips. If you're still alive, didn't look that up. Probably should have. Um, if not, rest in peace. And uh, <laughs> rest in peace. Thank you for the information that we will be using on our podcast. Yeah. So he he does say that that although that rule um, seems to kind of like be the official line that business definitely occurs there frequently. Some members actually push back against the business, but those are quite rare. Uh, political candidates also tend to make acquaintances with rich businessmen and then get in touch after the festivities with the intention of soliciting campaign contributions. Politicians actually work the Grove like a giant cocktail party, and in turn, this gives rich members uh, the opportunity to meet and judge future or current political candidates. In 1980, Mother Jones writer Rick Kloger infiltrates the Grove with the help of an employee and poses as a worker for two weeks. This leads to the first reporting from inside the Grove. ABC Evening News then jumps on board doing a special on the club and its facilities. And around then, there was like a lot of protesting, which is cool. Uh, it kind of faded out, I guess, at this point. And you'll hear a bit later uh, in our interview that, uh, yeah, there was pretty much like just one person out there sometimes now just protesting still. In the summer of 1989, a journalist for Spy Magazine infiltrates, which I can't, is that still a thing? Spy Magazine? Yeah. Is it? I, I think so. It. I yeah. fucking love it. It used to be kind of big. Yeah, I guess so. Well, he, anyways, he infiltrates the camp and is eventually arrested there. 
Uh, he describes pre-breakfast gin fizzes and heavy day drinking. This seems to be a bit of a Hunter S. Thompson-style exaggeration. A more rigorous researcher, the aforementioned uh, late Mr. Phillips, visited the Grove as a guest and said drinking before noon is only a feature of a minority of the camps in the Grove and that he didn't observe any, quote, drunken, obnoxious behavior, which would be considered ungentlemanly. Now, this is one thing that I tried to do in the research is gather different points of view on this because it seems like people disagree. Um, so either in the 21 years after uh, his visit, things got tawdrier and cheaper, right. which I would believe, sure. or he, you know, as someone who was brought in uh, as a guest by a member, he just kind of was like, listen, I'll cover everything, but I won't say you're stumbling drunk and pissing everywhere because that is... Some of the later reporting—that's definitely what seems to be happening there. Interesting. Or if it was like a like a like the, what they do when they bring like journalists to North Korea or something, they yes. only show them like the nice parts and then yeah. they send them on their way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I, it's the structure of the Grove is essentially like about 115 different camps, and camps basically. If you become a new member, you stay at this like like semi permanent camp thing, and then you get recruited eventually, like invited buy one of these to join them. Usually it's based around like what school you went to or some other kind of kinship. That's when they bring you, that's when they yeah. do the blood ritual, right? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. well, we'll get to, to that claim, certainly. <laughs> but uh, it, my point is that people kind of wander around from camp to camp. They join gotcha. each other's camps. They also have like big events that they have uh, happening together. And Phillips didn't seem to be restricted in the way he got to walk around. Okay. Like he really, he hobnobbed with a lot of people. He, if you read the dissertation, he even down to like anecdotes and overheard conversation, he kind of categorizes them. He numbers them. So you're not being led astray by an anecdote versus like some more kind of sociological research. And yeah, it's, it sounds, the whole thing sounds kind of like a, like a shittier Coachella. Well, yeah. I mean, you don't get sunburned though. And you have like butlers. Yeah, different. Uh, yeah, but well, same. If I was given the choice between two, uh, one being profoundly evil den of Republicans, and the other being <laughs> whatever the fuck Coachella is, like I guess a series of of young white girls wearing Indian headdress, uh, getting third degree sunburns while watching Kanye West, then I don't know, man. I actually don't know what I would pick. Like those are that is a rock and a hard place. Yeah. So by the 90s, uh, the Grove is actually staffed with up to 500 employees. Union waiters and cooks are being replaced at that point by local youth, many of them college students. They are paid between $8 and $13 an hour to wait on the members. So let's hope that uh, Bernie gets that 15 minimum wage so that the poor <laughs> Grove employees can, you know... Yeah, the fucking hot dog stand. <laughs> yeah, serve gin fizzes to Jeb Bush at 8 a.m. like with a bit more dignity. The Grove is empty most of the year, but security and core staff make sure nobody enjoys it while the rich are busy melting poor people into steel beams or whatever they do <laughs> in their free time. In 1994, a UC Berkeley professor gives a speech to Bohemian Club members. Our trusty sociologist Phillips describes it. The chat was entitled Violent Weakness, which focused on how increasing violence in society was weakening our social institutions. Contributing to this violence and decay of our institutions is bisexualism, entertainment <laughs> politics, multiculturalism, Afrocentrism, and loss of family boundaries. The speaker claimed that to advert further deterioration, we need to recognize that elites based on merit and skill are important to society. Loud clapping. Any elite that fails to define itself will fail to survive. 
We need boundaries and values set and clear. We need an American-centered foreign policy and a president who understands foreign policy. He went on to conclude that we cannot allow the unqualified masses to carry out policy, but that elites must set values that can be translated into standards of authority. This speech was forcefully given and was received with an enthusiastic standing ovation by most members. I asked a dozen men after the speech how they felt about it. One said it was too simplistic, and another said it should be discussed more, but the others all gave it strong approval. In three camps I visited after the chat, it was inevitably one of the topics of discussion. What I love about this passage, and I, by love I mean fucking hate, is uh, is that it really lays out that kind of Dick Cheney thing that usually they say a little quieter, which is, you people are inferior. We are making decisions for you. We are sending you off to war. We are deciding if you will be poor or not. We are establishing the standards of your life because we are inherently superior and more intelligent to you. Anyways, Phillips goes on to explain that the self-identification of these men as elites and the homogeneity present in the club led to, quote, the formation of reactionary attitudes towards various progressive movements. So, I mean, basically he's saying that these guys are radicalizing each other at this fucking camp. <laughs> the truth is, over 60% of the organized lakeside chats given from 79 to 93, and these were basically just like little speeches, are about politics and policy issues. Most attendees detest liberals, socialists, communists, and any vaguely left-leaning movement, as you kind of heard in that speech. In the same dissertation, Phillips also describes the racial makeup of attendees. Out of more than 2,000 people there, he, quote, observes three African Americans and one Asian. Every large gathering is a sea of white faces. He does a bit of research and ends up estimating that less than 1% of the members and guests were racial minorities. In fact, until the mid-60s, it is exclusively white. They open themselves to non-whites right around the same time that another San Francisco gentleman's club is being threatened by the state for racial discrimination. So it sounds like they got scared and were like, oh shit, we gotta do something about that. Phillips does observe that about one-third to a half of the staff are minorities. He doesn't spot any women, although people tell him that some are employed there. And we'll find out a little more about um, how that works later. In 2000, Alex Jones and his camera guy, Mike Hansen, sneak into the Grove and film the cremation of care ceremony, which is one of those central ones. It's, it, the conspiracy theorists tend to focus on it because it basically involves like hooded men standing around a, a kind of burning effigy at the foot of an owl statue. I mean, it's pretty epic. Yeah, yeah I watched I mean, the video. Yeah. So this is basically a community play about forgetting your worries. It includes the death of the Maleficent spirit of care, which at the time of its instoring is synonymous with anxiety. So not, not really, um, they're not saying don't give a shit, they're saying you need to relax. And it's very hard to relax if you're a rich, amoral piece of shit, unless of course you're able to stand together around a giant owl statue, listen to the recorded voice of club member Walter Cronkite, and combine music with pyrotechnics so you don't get bored. Anyways, Alex Jones decides the owl is Moloch, and the club members are sacrificing humans inside uh, the hollow interior of the owl. Uh, now, I'm no fan of the Bohemian Club, but this seems to be a perfect inversion of the ritual's topic. It was written in the late 1800s and originally focused on Christianity battling the Druids to convert them away from blood sacrifice. People dress up in robes and burn a small effigy after floating it on the lake. It's a play. John Ronson, an author and journalist, would later say about the ritual. My lasting impression was an all-pervading sense of immaturity. The Elvis impersonators, the pseudo-pagan spooky rituals, the heavy drinking. These people might have reached the apex of their professions, but emotionally, they seem trapped in their college years. 
The cremation of care is actually a minor event compared to the Grove play, a massive musical and theatrical production that involves 300 people and an orchestra. The play is put on every year after 1902, except between 1943 and 1945. During those World War II years, members still hang out in the Grove, but the play is not put on. Really, it's one of the many tragedies of World War II. In uh, 1975, the Grove play is estimated to cost about 140000 of today's dollars. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, it, it, you'll find out later that money does not buy quality. <laughs> In 2002, a 37-year-old guy called Richard McCaslin infiltrates the Grove during the off-season. He is armed with a rifle, a pistol, a knife, a sword, a bulletproof vest, and a homemade smoke bomb launcher. Fuck yes, upon, dude. Uh, upon arrival, he opts to leave his crossbow and baton in the truck, probably due B- to logistical reasons. Big mistake, though. That crossbow <laughs> that crossbow would have come in handy to fucking to kill all the wolves. He's got, he's got a fucking rifle, a pistol, a knife, and a sword. He was just like, I'm not sure what size combat I'm going to be in. but like, <laughs> he's, like, I'm, he's like, I don't know. I don't know what kind of creature. Uh, I will slay here. Uh, some can only be killed by the the uh, yeah. silver steel of, uh, the, <laughs> right. of the witcher's blade. He's literally yeah. thinks he's in fucking Diablo, yeah. and he's just going to be like twirling in circles and shredding demons. Yeah. Yeah, just fucking collecting loot. <laughs> looking at his sword, <laughs> looking at his crossbow, back and forth, which one, which one. He's like, damn it, damn it, damn it. Uh, which I love because, I mean, it kind of sounds like if you push this guy over, he'd get stabbed to death and shoot himself. <laughs> Um, also, one thing I haven't uh, mentioned yet is that he's wearing a superhero costume. <laughs> Doesn't say which I saw, one. I saw a picture of it. Actually, it's a custom-made one. Uh, he calls himself the Phantom Patriot. Tight. And uh, it's a blue USA-themed jumpsuit, and it has a uh, Phantom Patriot emblazoned across the chest. Pretty, pretty high-quality stuff. His face is covered with a skull mask, like full face covers, skull mask. And he's got like a little like kind of hat on top, a little skull cap that's um, blue with with white stars, of course. This is matched by a Punisher-like skull on his belt buckle and arm patches on each arm, which are like basically uh, one of them's a donkey, the other one's the elephant. And there's a cross through both of them just to be like, I fucking hate both of them. Um, So can you guess what this guy's uh, belief system comes from? Can you guess who his sensei is? Well, potential uh it's let let me make a guess is the name uh is it alex J- no that's too obvious it's uh, alex jones. a uh. jones <laughs> uh it's alex jones so he has been convinced for several years that he is doing battle with the new world order and his motivation of course is the alex jones documentary and its unsubstantiated claims of human sacrifice in the grove he actually got in there and filmed it and still they couldn't find any actual human sacrifice but didn't matter he, he made the documentary anyways and claimed that it was inside the owl statue oh which would God. make it invisible it's like a it's like a predecessor to the Pizzagate shooter. Yeah. Except Alex Jones did it himself, then he's like, I will never do this again. Yeah, you mean the you mean the superhero. You mean Skull yeah, Man. The superhero, yeah. Oh, the, uh, the oh, excuse hero. me, Phantom Patriot. Yeah, Phantom Patriot, yeah. Mm, I don't know, man. This guy's higher effort, like, and seems a little less mentally ill. And I don't that, that that doesn't say much, but why would he go why <laughs> right. would he go with Phantom when clearly that's a character already played uh by Billy Zane in the well, uh, 1997 well, film, fucking, The Phantom. I can't believe you know the You didn't actually. You don't know the actual year. Did you make that up? I made it up, but I think that's close. Somebody look really quick Jesus to see if I got Christ. it. As he creeps through the forest at night, McCaslin's flashlight runs out of batteries and he gets lost. Because <laughs> he didn't bring any. He brought all his weapons, but not a second set of fucking double A batteries or whatever. <laughs> 
<laughs> he gets lost in the dark like a fucking he's supposed to be a phantom patriot imagine a superhero just lost in the dark this is some like watchmen little yeah. shit so he breaks into a cabin and he crashes there and this is things get even better now the next morning, he heads out to the 40-foot owl and finds out it's made of concrete instead of wood, which is what he thought it was. So he can't burn it down, so he decides to burn down a mess hall instead. He's immediately thwarted by the sprinklers and alarm, <laughs> and after a short standoff with the police, he surrenders. He's like, I would have gotten away with it if it weren't for these damn sprinklers. <laughs> if, it weren't, if it weren't for these damn not knowing anything and just fucking bumbling my way through this shit. If you wrote a movie about a failure of a superhero, this would be like the script. Yeah. Like, there's no need to change it. Anyways. In 2009, an article by Julian Sancton relates a list of activities and their descriptions on the program for the day. On the menu, uh, a concert by legendary soul musician Sam Cooke, a fly fishing demonstration, a discussion of nuclear power's role in American energy, a Motown cover band, Sherlock Holmes night, and something called The Lovely Sea in the Sky. <laughs> Here are the descriptions of some of the more consistent rituals. Cremation of Care. Come join us as we raise the battle banners in the name of beauty, truth, peace, and fellowship. Oh, beauty vassals, let us together seek the counsel of the great owl of Bohemia so that we may rediscover the wisdom needed to banish dull care once again. And uh, this is Low Jinx, which is a play that changes every year. Set in a funeral home during the final days of Prohibition, easygoing ask that eternal Bohemian question, What's the best way to get pickled? <laughs> <laughs> now, 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 listen to the name of the main character. Will Prentice Boxham conquer his midlife crisis, derail his shrewish wife, Barbara? <laughs> 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 derail his shrewish wife Barbara's political ambitions and keep his business from going under the shadow knows but he's not telling so you're going to have to come to field circle and find out for yourself this is like it's like my my stupid shrewish wife who wants to be a politician <laughs> like Hillary Clinton uh, you know and then the guy's name is Prentice Boxham Prentice Boxham. Only yeah. rich dumbasses would come up with a name like that. Like, I, yeah. there's it's, no it human being. satirical. It does. I mean, it is all satirical in a way, but yeah. then it's also like a satire about how women are fucking annoying. <laughs> Prentice, named after a kid that we grew up on the block with that nobody liked. <laughs> the Bohemian Club's relationship to women, unsurprisingly, is not good. They have a single female member in the 1920s who serves as their librarian. When she dies in 1928, that's the end of female members. In 1978, the club is charged with discrimination by the state of California for refusing to hire any women as staff. In January 1981, after some legal battles, an administrative law judge is issued a decision in support of the club stating that members, quote, urinate in the open without even the use of rudimentary toilet facilities and that hiring women would alter that sacred behavior. <laughs> Thank you, judge. <laughs> it, would, it would be a shame, for example, if war criminal Henry Kissinger lost out on the opportunity to feel a forest breeze caress his sack as he drunkenly desecrates a redwood. <laughs> I fucking love that. I that judge, like, that they uh, did not buy. <laughs> Listen, we're not going to take away these men's sacred rights yeah. to just piss her in the open. But literally their argument is, like, if we had to do normal hiring that everyone else has to do, then rich men wouldn't be able to piss on trees. 
like, like what the fuck? How is that? Legally clear? I, don't, I don't understand. The Any law. normal yeah. human beings would be like, uh, I'm going to go ahead and say that uh, nobody can do that at their summer camps. <laughs> like you shouldn't be able to do that. I mean, yeah, just fucking go and do it. In fr- like what? Women have never seen dudes pee against trees. The judges were like. Hmm, sounds reasonable. If we if we get another report of a two-inch hard hog on this fucking location. The State Fair Employment and Housing Commission overrules the decision that same year, of course, ordering the club to recruit and hire women as employees. But the Bohemians refuse to bend the knee. And in 84, they go to the Supreme Court of California with a claim that their freedom of association is under attack. They are unsuccessful. Women are still not allowed to be members, but some do grace the staff roster. Today, women can work in either valet parking or serving people at the dining circle, both lower-paying jobs. There's an actual red line on the ground, apparently, that demarcates where female staff can and cannot go in the grove. So, I mean, think back to the original rules that the Bohemians who started this thing, which, by the way, were already kind of like provincial journalists that just wanted to feel like artists and and men of the world. Mm. But their first rule was... Um, no women, which th- they've tried to keep that. No rich people, which right, I mean, yeah. literally the t- total takeover, know. absolute takeover. Right. Six p- 6% were artists at the end. Um, and the, the last one was no publishers, which I don't, they probably didn't keep that rule together either. Yeah. But the no publishers really shows that they were fucking journalists. <laughs> <laughs> no editors here. Mom and dad cannot come. <laughs> so uh, were these uh, beautiful bohemian nymphs tree huggers? Appreciators of the beautiful redwood forests? Nah. The Bohemians spent years lobbying the government with fraudulent excuses in an effort to expand logging so they can continue to terraform their little theme park. So far, they have been unsuccessful. Today, security in the Grove is run by ex-military personnel equipped with thermal and night vision cameras, motion detectors, and vibration-sensing alarm systems. When the retreat is in session, it's not unusual to see the sheriff's office, highway patrol, and even secret service beefing up the ranks. Probably the most methodical account of the goings-on at the Grove is going to be Philip's sociological study, but in 2015, 21 years after his visit to the summer encampment, Sophie Wiener, which we'll be interviewing later, works on staff alongside other local youth. She later would describe her experiences in an article she pens for the now-defunct Gawker. It seems the Bohemians' gentlemanliness had undergone significant decay in those 21 years. Quote, Members wander between these camps, getting progressively drunker as they go, peeing on trees as they please, even in the designated no-pee zone, where the employee (laughs) shuttles would uh, bring us down to our cars. Quote, Once as I was driven the quarter-mile distance between the dining hall and the parking lot, I witnessed a a dozen drunken men stumbling around, said Stephen, who worked as a dishwasher in the kitchen. They were peeing on trees, which were only feet from the road. Others would not yield to our employee truck. We had to drive behind them at a snail's pace. What a bunch of fucking assholes. (laughs) Right, jeez. Another employee tells a story about Jeb Bush getting furious at a no milkshakes before 8 p.m. rule, which had been put in place due to the pastry chefs being busy preparing dessert for everybody else. Jeb asks to speak to the manager, of course, who tells him the same thing. He then pulls, apparently, the, do you know who I am? None of this works, and Jeb has to wait till 8 p.m. for a milkshake. (laughs) 
That is like a perfect Jeb story. I wore the milkshake. Yeah, that's such a Jeb. That's it's such a Jeb story. I want to be the Republican candidate. The, the fact that he didn't get it is just the cherry on top. Another account gives us a less romantic view of the member's stagecraft. A staff member who worked on the production states, quote, it was some of the worst theater I've ever seen. Sometimes it's a stage designer that's able to make an entire set from pieces of garbage. Then some guy shows up who's never done lights before, so he just makes everything pink. Then there's a guy who is on his fifth glass of wine and reading off a script, and they're all on the same stage together. <laughs> but the amazing creativity of these amateur thespians and stage managers cannot be suppressed. The same staff member recounts, quote, I've seen grown men throw hissy fits about whether they can have a person on stage fall through a trap door. I'm like, there's no trap door built, so we'd have to find the money to build a trap door. Also, the person you want to drop through the trap door is a 78-year-old arthritic man. That's not safe. <laughs> I wish that they had dropped more Republican politicians yeah. through trap doors at fucking summer camp. Ah, oh, he broke both his legs and can't rule anymore. So uh, what about the writing itself? Well, one of the guys who worked on the maintenance crew describes Henry Kissinger having a cameo as a weed-smoking character called Toker. He describes it, quote, At one point, Kissinger, wearing a big, long-haired wig and a tie-dye shirt, comes stumbling out of Toker's trailer, followed by a huge billow of smoke. He says in a deadpan voice, I never inhaled. The audience laughed quite a bit. So it's... Ugh, not, so it's not, not even it's not high good. school level of yeah. uh, it's not good variety show. But that's not surprising because a lot of these businessmen, they would do cool shit like drama or music in high school. And then they <laughs> go directly into this awful world where none of their actual like fun or creative needs get met. And then they're just desperate to put on a play in the summer. And this is what comes. Yeah, of it. those guys certainly like weren't, um, you know, football players who were uh bullying uh theater kids relentlessly uh, <laughs> or they were for called four like, years or they were called theodore and like everyone else <laughs> knew that like blackwater would fucking murk them in the night if they <laughs> fucked with them in conclusion the bohemian club and bohemian grove is a country club and summer camp for the powerful and wealthy attending gives you political social and financial advantages policy is often discussed and formed there fears that it constitutes a secretive place where these people can discuss the fates of the rest of the country is overall true in my opinion instead of satanic rituals and human sacrifice the activities in bohemian grove paint a picture of a very expensive frat larping as high priests and telling campfire stories by getting drunk and fancying themselves artists, the objectively amoral club members use the Bohemian Club and its rituals to wash themselves of the stink of their ongoing exploitative anti-humanism. It also allows them to mutually reinforce the feeling that they are superior gentlemen of profound intellect instead of war criminals and corporate shills. Plus, hey, uh, why not cement business deals, pick political horses, and plan anti-progressive activism while you're at it? It's a win-win-win. It's and that, fellas, is Bohemian Grove. Wow. It's I mean it's worse but also less interesting than yeah. you would think. Yeah, it's like a shitty it's like a shitty retreat and like shitty people's idea of like what fun is. But you know, I mean what what makes it probably appealing is the ex exclusivity. You know, yeah. even though even though there are probably better ways to spend your summer, there are better right. there are better, more fun places to go. The fact that uh, this isn't available to anyone is probably what makes it appealing. I think they genuinely love this kind of shit because when you think of like a, a person that rich, like they don't really have like, oh, here's some grass to play on. Like they're it's like they have their their backyards, but there's not 
like this is like an this is like their Coachella essentially. Right. It's like you get yeah, to yeah. get together in a it field is. somewhere. There's music. There's stuff. You I mean, drink. You can you, piss on. I I think the uh, you know the main draw is being being able to piss wherever they want. Yeah, I right. think that these guys they go through life. You know they've got Secret Service details or they've got you know families or all these. You know they got to yeah. go speak at events. They can't just like whip out their cocks and urinate wherever they want. I think this is a huge draw for them being yeah. able to piss they, on a uh, on a they <laughs> spend a national park for us they spend all year pissing into the mouths of poor people so they're like what would it be if this poor person was a redwood yeah well, i think that it's like they're they're in the case where if they they, they live with the especially if they're in the public eye they live with the daily fear that if they fuck up something big it's going to be a national news story yeah and so they live with that 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 uh, that fear and that stress of like okay i gotta behave in a certain way or else my entire life's work is getting crumbling down in a day yeah, yeah. and then they go to this place where all right cut loose nobody's like, here like, yeah, yeah everyone, everyone else here is kind of a, is kind of like it's kind of like you too so you can just you can just get get wasted and uh you know put on terrible plays and make and cross dress make a fool of yourself piss on trees yeah i forgot fun. to mention that but they do yeah. they, they do because there's only men the women on stage are are just uh men members of the <laughs> bohemian grove cross dressing which is an old shakespearean tradition yeah but mm -hmm. uh you'd think that uh, you know in this day and age you could just get some women up on that stage and it'd be just as entertaining yeah yeah, and they, you'd think that maybe they'd be interested in performing actual Shakespeare, you know? These guys are supposed to be, you know, these these high, you Native know, uh, high intellectuals and, you know, uh, into that sort of shit, but sounds like they just write their own shitty plays. Well, that's the thing, is, like, they kept this kind of pseudo-pagan bullshit from the original guys who, you know, were kind of already LARPing as artists, so it's it's basically an, an artist LARP that started with journalists and now is just incredibly yeah. rich Republican-aligned people. Well, it's it's like fraternities. I mean, uh, you know, all mo I think all, but you know, most fraternities come from old uh, Mason, uh, old Masonic uh, sort of uh, traditions, and so uh, in, in a, br a brief a brief time in college where I I joined a fraternity. Um, I went to a ceremony and everybody was dressed in uh, mason robes and uh, they it lo they looked like they were you know Ku Klux Klan members. I mean, because the, the mason the mason robes uh, are very similar. And I remember them telling us beforehand they were like, "Now look, guys, you're gonna see you know you're gonna see some things that are you know just keep an open mind, just just keep an open mind." I was like, "What what, what could they possibly be uh, warning me about? This is a college fraternity. What's the big deal?" And then, yeah, sure enough, uh, they got weird with it. They got super weird. Yep. Yeah, yeah. The lesson here is that the the more successful you get, the more uh, you know elite you get, the more weird you want to get. Yeah, I don't even yeah. think so because it's like, I mean, if you actually hang out with artists, like they do weird, cool shit all fucking year round. They yeah. spend they spend like all their nights out doing cool, weird shit. Yeah, but these men don't have. Yeah. yeah, but also these men are hated by all artists. So this is a That's place true. they can go to where the few artists that are there are right. in their service and they would never call them anything except gentlemen. Yeah, and they, they, they and even if they put on a shitty play, you'll have like experienced artists saying like, this is boring bullshit. You yeah. Know? Well, yeah, yeah I know. It's their idea of what they think artists get to do uh, 364 days out of the year. Yeah. Artists with their fucking butlers. Yeah. <laughs> and their piss. <laughs> We are sitting here with Sophie Weiner, um, and she is the night editor 
at Splinter, which is, by the way, a fantastic publication. I love it. And she also happens to have worked at the Bohemian Grove. So uh, welcome on the podcast, Sophie. Hey, how's it going? I was uh, amazed uh, to, to, to because I followed you on Twitter and then found out that you had written an article that I was using um, for research, among among others. But what interested me about your article specifically is that you have experience working at the Grove, and it was very organic. You didn't kind of go there as a reporter, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I was 18, so I definitely wasn't uh, like going undercover. <laughs> I just needed to make money. How like how did you come to work at Bohemian Grove? Can you tell us a little bit about the the region and, and the relationship of Bohemian Grove to the communities around it? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I grew up in Northern California in Sonoma County, uh, which is where the, where the Bohemian Grove is located. Um, as uh, your listeners may or may not know, it's part of something called the Bohemian Club, which has existed for, you know, a hundred years or so. Um, and it was mostly sort of geared towards people in San Francisco. So once a year, they go up uh, to this property they have on the Russian River in Sonoma County in the Redwood Forest. Uh, and they, you know, party and hang out for a few weeks up there. So to people who sort of live around there, like me, it wasn't really a big deal. It was just a place, you know, many people I know had parents, including me who had done work for the Grove. I mean, my dad's a lawyer, he had done some work for them at some point. Um, you know, it was a major employment source and, uh, you know, source of money for a lot of people in that area, some of whom are pretty poor. So, yeah. And I mean, as far as me and my friends, uh, we were in high school and had just graduated from high school and we were many of us looking for summer jobs. And, you know, the Bohemian Grove encampment is kind of a perfect summer job because it only lasts for a few weeks and they paid pretty well. They paid like, I believe it was like 1150 an hour which was pretty good for us, um, you know, as teenagers where, you know, otherwise we would be able to get a minimum wage job or something. Um, so it was it was a pretty good deal. Uh, and as I described in the article, it was really easy to get a job there as a teenager. You didn't really need any experience. You just sort of had to prove that you could like not, you know, spit in people's food or whatever. It was pretty simple. So so, yeah, it was a good deal for us. You know, we knew maybe a little bit about the sort of mystique around around the Grove and these, you know, conspiracy theories about it. And there were occasionally like, you know, one old crazy lady protesting outside of the Grove when you went in there. But in general, it was just a place that you could get a job. And what was your job? So I was a server at the Dining Circle, which was one of the only few jobs you could get as a woman because it's still a male only, uh, club. Um, so yeah, I was basically a server. Um, they have a pretty sort of assembly line type, uh, process for serving the hundreds of people who sort of come up to the dining circle, uh, you know, two times a day for breakfast and dinner. Um, and, you know, so I would take their orders and bring them back to the chefs and then bring their orders back out and try not to screw anything up. You mentioned in the article that it's kind of like, like every service job in the end, it's kind of boring. Oh yeah. It's, 
I mean, it's really boring. Like, I mean, it it is grueling because the way that it works is because it's such a short period of time. You basically just dedicate your entire life to doing that for those three weeks. And a lot of the time you would have split shifts. So you would have like a 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. shift. And then later that day you would have like a 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. shift. And the Grove is kind of in the middle of nowhere. So, you know, it was a 40 minute drive from my house. So I would sort of just have to bum around during the middle of the day and then, you know, go back a few hours later. Um, But there's not really much going on. (laughs) And so during your kind of off hours, like, did you explore? Did you get to explore a little bit? Did you did you do anything? Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) You're not allowed to do that. Yeah. So despite the fact that it is very, you know, in a lot of ways, is just a normal, crappy service job. In other ways, you know, the security is pretty tight. Like, there's a parking lot that all of the staff parks in. And it's a ways away from the actual camp, you're not actually allowed to drive near up to the camp. So you have to park, and then you have to wait for a shuttle, which is just like a van that they pile, you know, eight or 10 kids in and then drive you up to the camp because they don't want you walking anywhere on the actual grounds. And they don't want you knowing like exactly what's going on up there. So yeah, it was that was a big part of it. And if I I remember from speaking to several of my friends, I don't remember physically actually seeing this, but there was supposedly at least a line on the ground that you were not supposed to cross. Um, when you were working at the dining circle and specifically women were not supposed to cross it because they were not allowed in the rest of the camp. Um, so yeah, no, I, I have no idea what the rest of the camp looks like, uh, other than from, you know, what I've heard from other people I know who worked in, in different areas and, and people I know who visited. Yeah. I mean, speaking of that, uh, what was the general sentiment among the staff about, uh, the Grove? And did any of them have political misgivings about their role? I mean, seeing that, you know, it was a majority Republican organization. West Sonoma County is a very liberal place in general. There's, you know, a lot of ex-hippies and, you know, it's it's sort of one of those uh, super, super lefty communities uh, that are sort of scattered around the country. But there's also a lot of people who live out in the woods and drive trucks. And, you know, there were people at my high school who had Confederate flags on their cars, which obviously makes no sense because it's Northern California. But, you know, so it it was it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, You know, among my friends, I feel like we sort of just were whispering about it, like, oh, like Donald Rumsfeld might be here, like one of the Bushes might be here. And of course, we hated all of them. But being from like a small town, it's not it's it's more like oh wow this really famous person might be here <laughs> like yeah of course of course know, it's still kind of impressive yeah you're like oh wow the like ceo of the haynes corporation is sitting at my table today or the you know ceo of nintendo is here or whatever um so i think you are kind of like dazzled by the sort of money and power um even if you know the more sort of politically aware people among us were sort of like, uh, George Bush or like Jeb Bush or whatever. Um, so, you know, it, it, I mean, I personally was sort of like, uh, these people suck, but also <laughs> pretty much the customers suck at almost every service industry job. So right. you're sort of like, 
it's not really that different. Um, yeah, we, I, I don't know. I feel like there were, there were more conversations about the sort of, um, rumors that I guess are pretty substantiated that they did some planning for the Manhattan project there. And I, I remember people talking about that because they thought it was cool. You know, <laughs> they weren't yeah. super politically engaged. They weren't like, Oh, that's bad. They were just like, Oh man, they did some cool secret stuff here. So yeah, I mean, I, I think the the Grove was pretty, uh, pretty much correct to think that people like me in general were not going to grow up to be journalists and write about this. They were just wrong, like, you know, one time, <laughs> you know, one of my friends also worked on the maintenance crew, um, which was year round at the camp. And he got to see all kinds of stuff. And I mean, he got to see stuff uh, on the sort of employee side that was also, you know, a little bit uh, questionable, like, rampant drug use and stuff um but, so you're you're yeah. saying that the the staff uh liked their drugs but uh did you notice or hear about any drug use among the members i didn't hear about drug use i mean they're literally the most powerful people in the world so they can do whatever they want um the one thing you do hear about is uh the prevalence of sort of sex workers in the camp and there are a lot of sort of, you know, and, and these are the kinds of things where it's like rumors that you hear about and that you can never really confirm. Um, but you know, you hear that all of the sort of motels along the Russian river nearby the camp all get booked up with sex workers, um, which would make sense because I mean, <laughs> what else are you going to do for three weeks in the woods? I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, one thing that I emphasize in the article and that um, is is interesting is that like, as far as these sort of, you know, incredibly powerful people who are in this very, very rarefied environment, they really want it to be a break for them from the outside world. So they really don't talk about business or anything. They don't do high level deals or whatever while they're out at the Grove, they really just want to like drink, pee on trees and like chill with their friends. That is, that is really the whole idea of the thing. And I had a hard time believing that at first because I was sort of like, that's so relatable, right? That? It's way too relatable. <laughs> like everybody wants yeah. to do that. <laughs> right. Right. And I mean, I guess, you know, it makes sense if you're an incredibly high powered, like executive or, politician or whatever, you don't always want to be, you know, scheming and working on your deals or whatever. You probably just want to hang out and have fun. And the whole point of the Grove is that they can do that. You know, despite these very strict rules they apparently have about networking and about, you know, talking about work while you're at the Grove, of course, going there is still going to greatly benefit you if you are one of these people, because the next time you see that person in, you know, a corporate boardroom or in the Senate or whatever, you're going to remember that time that you got wasted together on the river and, you know, shot at trees or whatever they do. So it's, you know, even if they aren't actually talking about business and stuff, it's still an opportunity for these incredibly elite people to bond with each other and to form alliances that will help them. Yeah. And it's not like during their stay, they become down to earth. You described uh, an interaction <laughs> with one of your colleagues that had been accepted to Harvard. Could you tell us about that? Yeah. So this is a friend of mine. Yeah. She was, uh, 
from my high school where we didn't we didn't really have many people go to Ivy Leagues. Uh, and she got into Harvard, which was very impressive. And um, a lot of the camps are sort of organized around um, various institutions like colleges or, you know, various other things. Um, so, you know, there's a Harvard camp at the Grove and she ended up serving the table that was all people from the Harvard camp. And when they asked her where she was going to school and she told them, they were all like very excited. Most of them were really psyched that, you know, this young girl who was serving them was going to Harvard. But this one guy just sort of looked at her and was like, oh, I didn't think they let people like you into Harvard, (laughs) which is which Perfect. is what I mean that she's not an aristocrat. I mean, like, what is the I, yeah, what was honestly, his point there? Do you know, think someone who it has to take a service job, right? Or right. Maybe could be just a woman. I mean, this guy was probably really old. So, like, amazing. Who knows? So, yeah. so then uh, you ended up publishing this article. Was there any reaction? I mean, usually they're quite kind of secretive and also quite quiet about any criticism. But did you get? Any pushback or reaction by this kind of, quote, elite when you published it? Literally nothing. Um, <laughs> I think it's it's interesting th- thinking about publishing the piece because this was in the post, you know, Hulk Hogan gawker. And so there was a lot of fear around publishing anything that could be, you know, lead to further lawsuits. Um, and so... Getting this piece up required quite a few conferences with the legal team at Gawker um, to try to go through everything and make sure I wasn't saying anything that was, you know, defamatory or could could get anyone in trouble, really. And I mean, the really the only reason why it worked is because I didn't have anything like that to report. Like it was not really about, you know, crazy things or things that could you know, really piss off people who are very powerful, but just about the right. sort of mundane, mundanity of of power and of, you know, these incredibly elite people and just how little they actually care about anyone underneath them. Um, so it, it ended up sort of working out in that way um, because if if there had been some crazy things that I wanted to talk about, I probably wouldn't have been able to write it for Gawker um, at that time. And then, yeah, I mean, as far as reaction, I feel like I got a little bit of reaction from some people who are very sort of interested in the Grove. And I mean, I am sure you'll discuss this on your episode, but the Grove has obviously been a sort of focus of conspiracy theories for a long time. I mean, people like Alex Jones went there in the nineties, I think Uh, he like broke in and other people have done that as well. Um, So yeah, I mean, I, I think some people from the sort of like Bohemian Grove truther community may have been interested in it, although I feel like it didn't really provide what they wanted because it was just like, this is what it's actually like. It's not actually this crazy conspiracy place. It's just like rich people getting drunk. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Is there anything that you'd like to plug? I am working on a few projects right now that I can't uh, fully announce yet, but you should, uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, my name is uh, S-O-P-H-C 
W and uh, I I do a lot of stuff about leftism and also music journalism. Thanks again for coming <laughs> on the show. Yeah, of course. No problem. QAnon and elite symbolism with Travis View. Now the whole the whole Bohemian Grove thing kind of made me think about like how the QAnon sort of community thinks about the elites and how they communicate with each other and how they sort of like you know keep the 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 rest of the world away from themselves and the QAnon community they basically think that they all uh, the elites all signal to each other with symbols with these secret symbols and the, and you know it could be like a, like a, like drawings or hand gestures or like just you know the designs or whatever it's just a weird convection here's here's an example there's a Q drop from November 21st 2017 that talks about two symbols in particular the owl and the y symbol which performers, celebs, supported HRC during the election? Who performed at her rallies? What jewelry and or tattoos present? What other events do they attend together? What does HRC represent to them? What celebrities have owl slash Y head symbols? What politicians have owl slash Y head symbols? What powerful people have owl slash Y head symbols? What powerful groups have owl slash Y head symbols? Why are they worn slash shown openly? Their need for symbolism will be their downfall. Does this guy think that owls are something that most people like look down on somehow? It's like you got to hide your owl symbols. No, if they think that, you know, it's like they think that, uh, you know, the the elites they show off the these owl symbols to signal that they're part of this big satanic elite club and that you can't do anything about yes, it yes exactly and it's interesting is that it doesn't just say that they use symbolism that they need symbolism yeah, yeah they, they need, need to it. show off I mean, all human beings need symbolism. Uh, language itself yeah, it's true. is a form it's of true. symbolism. So this is uh, stupid, I it's would true. say. But, but, the thing, <laughs> but, but of course, uh, like, why exactly are these elites flaunting their symbolism even after the very smart anons on Q Research have exposed them for what they are? Uh, why, <laughs> why did the first men draw symbols on the sides <laughs> of caves? They were the first cabal, and that's why they drew the horse symbols on the side of the Lescaux grounds. <laughs> So here's uh, another November 21st, 2017 Q drop. Follow the owl and Y head around the world. Identify and list. They don't hide it. They don't fear you. You are sheep to them. You are feeders. Wait, so you like to give food to, to large women that you're turned on by? <laughs> yeah, what's I don't really get it. I think if like, you type in feeders on Pornhub, you'll see you'll see you'll see what's up, buddy. Well, thank your word for that. But they, what they, they, what they, I think by feeders here they mean being like, be like you're yeah. just like livestock. Yes, absolutely. So there was the August 2018 Q drop, and Q said this: "It's always been out in the open. You just have to look. You must stay together. Together, you are strong. Symbolism equals end." Q. What is the Y symbol? I, I, it's it's like, just it's just a Y. Just Anything a, that looks a y, like a Y. Just a Y. Example is that remember that uh, photo of uh, the Rothschilds from the seventies mm-hmm. where it was sort of the stag head, the right. two horns. That's supposed to be a wow. Y. So they're supposed so to be, rabbits are part of the cabal. rabbits. Yes, any any yeah any Y head. Any, it's, yeah. Antelope. Be, oh, because it's yeah. like horns, like, yeah, devil horns. Horns. like devil horns. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah, Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Goats. 
Um, <laughs> Please go. go through every horned animal. Uh, hornets. Jews. Jews. <laughs> So, <laughs> so the imagine the elites can be so flagrant with their need for symbolism because they have total contempt for the rest of us. They can continue signaling to each other how much they love drinking that sweet adrenochrome even after we figure out what they really mean. So, of course, you know, like the owl actually does have a long tradition as a symbol of like wisdom or darkness or, or and evil, depending upon the context. In Greek mythology, the goddess Athena was said to be accompanied by a small owl. Uh, owls are even minted on coins in ancient Athenian currency. The ancient historian Plutarch mentioned owl symbolism in his biography of the Greek general and politician Themistocles. Made up names. Yeah. <laughs> in one particular. Themistocles. Plutarch? Yeah, right. <laughs> so, in one uh, particular passage, Plutarch claims that the appearance of an owl before the naval battle of Salamis in 480 BC helped rally the troops for battle. And here's what Plutarch wrote. Some say that while Themistocles was thus speaking upon the deck, an owl was seen flying to the right hand of the fleet, which came and sat upon the top of the mast. And this happy omen so far disposed the Greeks to follow his advice. <laughs> That they presently prepared to fight. Wait, so it was like uh, the Greek were like the first Bernie Sanders with that little bird <laughs> landing on the floor? Ah, <laughs> yeah. oh, the great omen of war with the DNC. <laughs> yeah. Also, I love ancient history texts because they're always like, this is what I heard. Maybe it's true. I'm going to write it down, you know? Yeah. Like the, 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 no, it's all fucking made up yeah, shit. It's all, it's, yeah. all, it's, all, it's all shit I heard. Like the, 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 like the, the line between like history and like rumor and legend is just totally blurry. It's Absolutely. great. Plus, like fucking owls are amazing. Yeah. Look at nature documentaries of course we're fucking we love them and we're obsessed of course, with them. of course They're super fucking bizarre and it's cool amazing. looking yeah of course and they make great sounds of course mm -hmm. yeah owl symbolism has always been this broad cultural thing you They're know big open eyes you know fucking humming with light in the goddamn dark of a beautiful forest you know what i'm talking about watch <laughs> turning me on right now watch <gasps> the owls isn't there uh isn't there something in um twin peaks where where yeah. they're like Watch the owl. There is, yeah. There's a lot of owl stuff yeah, in Twin Peaks. Yeah, that, that the owl essentially also it, Winnie the Pooh. From what the I owl remember, owl was like the wise, right. uh, you know, daddy. Of course, or it's, God, that's true. And, and I owls, guess it's, it's carry special meaning. Um, you know, the secret <laughs> of Nim. Uh, she, uh, Mrs. Frisbee, uh, goes to visit uh, the wise owl in the tree, which which is the catalyst for the story. Lord of the Rings. Gollum is an owl. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you, you often see like conspiratorial people like Alex Jones claim that the owl is a symbol of Moloch, uh, <laughs> but uh, like but uh, the Canaanite god associated with child sacrifice. But this is ahistorical since Moloch was always represented by a bull and not an owl. But beyond owls, they think that modern elites also borrow symbolism from like several sources, such as the Freemasons. On uh, March 4th, 2019, Q uh, shared an image that's popular uh, in several online conspiratorial circles that compares logos of tech companies from uh, and Freemason imagery. Damn, these are fucked, though, kind of. Well, yeah. The that's thing because is, if you search through symbols yeah. endlessly, you'll eventually yeah. find, let's look, an eye, three lines connecting a ball <laughs> in the middle of a ball, right? Uh, an envelope, me, an yeah, F. Okay, you, but uh, the Google Chrome uh, one and the Divine walk, King sign 666... 
are, are so, it's the same. I mean, no, hold because on, hold if on. you look through like a million. Okay, sorry. Go ahead, Travis, and actually teach us. So, mm. so yes, this, this image notes the similarity of the Gmail logo to the Masonic Royal Rich Apron, and this is an apron that the Freemasons use during ceremonies. And uh, it, also, it really does look it does, so funny. Yes, it does look so, a lot it looks like, like it. the Gmail logo. It does, but uh, again, but the like Masons you noted, are fucking. They're benign. Like course. If, they're even more benign than the Bohemian fucking club. Like I've been inside one. Inside a mason? I've been inside a Masonic <laughs> temple. I okay. have. I partied there once. What? Also, no, it's true. I partied there one night, big time. Wait, what do you mean? With the masons? With, yeah, with some masons. They had a lot of drugs, and uh, there were they were showing me ancient texts that had been in the temple for hundreds of years. So they had all of these, like they had an amazing library that just had like books that were hundreds and hundreds of years old. Wow. Uh, they also had Jesus. a uh, an organ that was like a turn of the century, um, this like amazing kind of organ that like uh, sounded amazing. Th this is exactly what these elite uh, clubs are though. It's just a bunch of frat dudes railing lines off a fucking organ from a hundred years ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean. <laughs> So uh, that graphic also notes the similarity of the Facebook logo to the uh, Masonic Tubal Cain logo. Tubal Cain is a briefly mentioned individual in the book of Genesis who, who is said to be an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. It also notes the similarity of the Apple uh, App Store logo and the Android Store logo with the Freemason Square and Compass logo. And like you mentioned, this, these are all, they just draw from basic design principles. So yeah, of course there are similarities. Yeah. And not just that. I mean, I, I, as a, I have a background as a designer and I work with designers a lot and like the kind of books designers have are just like every symbol, completely stripped of context, just every symbol that's become important for any kind of like group or sect throughout history. And then you kind of take from that to build stuff. But what I think is that what you're not seeing here is the reverse engineering. Let's say you have a book of like a thousand different satanic uh, logos. You just go through them until you find one that like resembles a tech logo and you're like, yep. And you reverse engineer it. Yeah. You don't look at the 999 like logos that don't match at all. Yeah. I don't see like any Masonic logo that matches the new Slack logo. I'll just say that. <laughs> Do you not? Uh, no. So Slack is yeah, fine? No, Slack is the fucking devil. What are you talking about? No, it is, dude. People fucking harass me to yeah, make me do work on that It's the worst. Shit. Yeah, it's the worst. <laughs> I fucking hate it. I hate that, Slack. If there's any program that is a fucking mouth to hell itself, <laughs> yes. it is it's, Slack. It's Slack. Yeah. I could not agree more. In it, fact, uh, it's uh, named after what you need to do to your jaw to suck Satan's dick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we, we have fun, don't we, boys? We have fun. Good, we have good, fun. This is a good fun. time. This is a good episode. I, Hail I like Satan. This Hail Satan. In another instance, on an April 3rd, 2018 Q drop, Q shares a photograph of the interior of the Hall of Pontifical Audiences in Rome. This, is, this one is such a stretch. The photograph is next to a picture of a venomous, venomous fanged snake that appears poised to strike. And the implications that the interior of the building and the snake resemble each other. Dude, there's a character from Space Ghost Coast to Coast that looks more like this shit. Yeah, <laughs> this kind of looks like a like a two dimensional stretched out like um, yeah. like Predator drawing kind it of. Look, oh, that's true. It also looks like Predator. Uh, the last person, the last thing I would choose is a snake. Yeah. I mean, kind of maybe. There's like the fang like things. Yeah. It's yeah. The text of the graphic reads: If Satanists took over the Vatican. Would you notice? And like, 
I don't know if like if no, because they're already molesting children right. and, and they, they <laughs> right. suck what would ass. Change? Yeah, right. what would change? They suck <laughs> fucking ass. <laughs> Fuck Literally. the Catholic Church. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah there's, there's this weird indication. Like I want to know what the exactly was the architect told. All right, we want the interior yeah. of this to resemble a uh, fanged snake because we're Satanists now. I just want to um, shout out my beautiful Italian uh, grandmother on my dad's side and just say this, I don't mean any of the things that are being <laughs> said on this podcast. The Catholic Church is fantastic. And uh, <laughs> and the Pope is great. In that Q drop that referenced the uh, the interior of the um, pontifical audiences in Rome, uh, Q says this: symbolism will be their downfall. Money, power, influence—the bite that has no cure. NSA, Q. The bite that has no cure. Yeah. <laughs> Tie it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand doesn't, that. Doesn't Bite it have isn't a cure? even a disease. I no, don't... but it, he means like uh, the basically what he's trying to say is like the venom that has no oh, cure. You know, venom, okay. he means like a snake bite. I think. Gotcha. All right. Yeah, but, but he like, just he just does. sucks at basic language information. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, but like, can't you like suck the poison out? Like, oh, you can if it's in the dick. Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the only place. <laughs> This uh, like this fixation on symbolism seems to be another way that QAnon is like an outgrowth of Pizzagate because in Pizzagate they thought that the elites use codes to communicate to each other about child sexual abuse and by cracking these codes like the Anons can figure out how depraved the elites really are and um, it's, it's just sort of like a sort of like an extension of like the conspiratorial thinking generally like there's just there's this sort of there's secret club but if you like figure out how they communicate each other in these secret ways then you can sort of unlock the secrets of the universe basically accusing the elites of uh, a need for symbolism feels like the most clear-cut example of projection from QAnon people because they imagine that they are part of this QAnon club that is full of symbolism they have like the big flaming Q symbol the where we go one we go all symbol and they think that President Trump is sending them Q QAnon you know, signals all the time. Like every time like uh, Trump wiggles his finger in the air, that's supposed to be making a cue. And uh, every time like Trump says 17, that's like a signal. And like he's supposed to be like they imagine like, oh, I'm I'm hearing things from Trump, these secret subtle signals that no one else is hearing. And this is like how they, basically how they imagine the elites communicate with each other. Yeah, that is that is. You uh, think text message would be easier, of, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is kind of hypocritical of them to. Uh, to but it judge. is true. They want their own secret club. They yeah, do. they you want their what? own elite and club. You know what? Exactly. I actually think that uh, people deserve that. Everyone deserves a nice summer camp where we have fun, right. and that's why we need to strip the rich of their fucking assets, right, re-educate well. them, and eventually, what we need to do is help them integrate. You know how they're always talking about how, like, right. oh, Mexican people and Muslims should integrate? We need to reintegrate rich people into no fucking calling being normal. Yeah. for revolution on the podcast. We've talked about that. I think that's a good idea, Julian. I, I'm, I'm, just I'm saying, actually behind I'm that. I'm just saying rich people have the biggest need to integrate, and they're always talking about fucking, you know... Uh, uh, immigrants, and as far as I can tell, immigrants are not taking anything from me, whereas rich people are taking it all. Yeah, because because right. once you become rich, if if you weren't like super, if you weren't born into it, like you kind of forget what it's like to be poor. Yeah, like you that's just, why. And they're reinforcing each other. They're radicalizing each other at a camp in, in a training camp, if I can say so. <laughs> uh, no, but for real, I do think uh, that if 
if you're going to go out there and insult rich people, telling them that they're badly integrated into society is a great approach uh, <laughs> because it really turns their weapons on them. And it's so fucking true. They can't hang out with any normal people. As you saw when Hillary Clinton fucking dabbed on Ellen and everyone was like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my big theory is that like QAnon people, they're like they're suffering come from like FOMO. Yeah. And that they, they, they'd be like, I was like, why aren't you inviting me to your Bohemian Grove party? You know, yeah. it's like uh, they, they want to be on the inside. It's yeah. true. And mm-hmm. you know what? Uh, all you need to do is is go to a beautiful natural park with some friends and have a picnic on the lawn and you're part of a fucking cool cabal. Like, that's it. Just go enjoy yourself. Get out from outside of your fucking computer. I don't know why I'm yelling at QAnon people, but I do think they should spend a little bit less time behind their computer and a little more time outdoors with friends. Drinking. Agree. Yeah, have Blowing fun. each other. Yeah. Climbing trees. Uh, domesticating monkeys. Whatever. Uh, drawing symbols on rocks. Yeah. Leaving them around to creep the next person out. I don't know. I just play some lawn bowling. Yeah. <clears throat> Pee on a tree. Yeah. Just piss right on right. a tree. We're going to de-radicalize <laughs> these people with lawn bo- bowling and piss. <laughs> <laughs> a Bohemian Grove story with Jake Rokotansky. Starring Sean Connery. Connery looked at his watch. Quarter past eight. His private plane had touched down on the tarmac moments ago. A car would be waiting to drive them to the final leg of the journey. The destination? Bohemian Grove. A festival for politicians and actors and artists. Connery had heard tales from his buddies about how amazing the event was. And Clint Eastwood, an acquaintance of his, had been pressuring him immensely for the last six months about attending. The entrance fee was $25,000. Even though the money was no concern to Connery, twenty-five k was a lot to spend on a weekend. He didn't even know who the main presenters were going to be. He sighed and warily gathered his belongings beneath the seat in front of him and strutted out onto the tarmac. The air was cool for May, as was often the case in Northern California. Connery lit up a cigarette and took a long, slow drag, taking in the hustle and bustle of the airport surrounding him. He noticed a large black SUV waiting on the tarmac. The door flung open... And there was Clint, a leathery smile on his face. He beckoned Connery over to the SUV. You made it, you Scottish prick, Eastwood beamed. Nice to see you too, Eastwood, you dry old bastard, Connery smirked. (laughs) Eastwood opened a small fanny pack around his waist and handed Connery a bright pink wristband. Make sure you put it on your left wrist, quipped Clint. And by the way, I got us VIP. Eastwood seemed proud of himself. It was clear he was a bohemian veteran. Stashed in the van were water bottles, pills of MDMA, and over 50 joints. Connery's eyes went wide. It had been ages since he'd filled his body with these types of narcotics. Panic attacks that had consumed his 30s and 40s made him wary of hard drugs. It was as if Clint read his mind. And no pussing out. Trust me, we're gonna have the time of our lives. And they were off. The SUV skated out of the airport and onto a neighboring freeway, headed towards the Great Redwood Forest, where the festival was to take place. In the car, Eastwood was yammering on like an excited child, getting ready to go to Disneyland, unaccompanied by his parents. He was poring over a small printed schedule and excitedly trying to plan which events they would attend. Okay, I'm thinking like from 7 to 9, we can hang out in the VIP section and get a couple of drinks in us. That sounded good to Connery. The only way he was ever going to get through this nightmare is if he was good and drunk. Fine with me, Connery sighed. Eastwood continued, All right, and then the cremation of care is going down at the Owl Shrine at 9.15. If we leave the VIP tent by 9 p.m., we should be able to get over there and get a decent spot. 
Connery nodded his head, feigning excitement. He never understood why people like Clint were so obsessive about scheduling when it came to these goddamn festivals. This was supposed to be fun. Besides, most of their lives as actors was centered around adhering to a strict schedule with places and times carefully laid out as they were ushered from event to event. He noticed Eastwood was now pulling ridiculous-looking robes and accessories out of his backpack. No, Connery said calmly. Eastwood looked hurt. Come on, Sean, everybody dresses up. It'll be fun. No, Connery reiterated. I'm perfectly happy with the outfit I've selected for myself. There'll be no need for flamboyant costumery. Eastwood pushed back. So you're telling me you're happy with being the only guy there in street clothes? Don't you want to fit in with some of the younger members? Absolutely not, Connery exclaimed. Eastwood slumped back into the bucket seat of the SUV. Fine, I just thought after I went through all the trouble to upgrade us to VIP that maybe you'd humor me and wear one of these kick-ass robes. <laughs> Eastwood looked up at Connery with hopeful eyes. After about an hour, the SUV came to a stop in a dense area of the forest. Eastwood and Connery hopped out, both wearing elaborate robes bedazzled with all sorts of high-end costume jewelry. I look like a goddamn fool, Connery lamented. His ill-fitting robe was riding up his ass, and he could already tell his greatest obstacle for the weekend would be managing the certain rash that would come upon <laughs> How he... does a robe ride up an ass? It doesn't even have, like, a, like a bottom to it. Shut it's... up. <laughs> his ill-fitting robe was riding up his ass and he could already tell his greatest obstacle for the weekend would be managing the certain rash that would be upon him any minute <laughs> is, I love it it's like he has panic attacks and rashes this by the way is not me this is Sean Connery yeah this is not about me uh, going to a music festival uh, in any way shape or form this is Sean Connery's story I have sourced he's like, this he's like the the, the diamond porto potties <laughs> which is what they do when people are rich uh Connery glanced around and saw others arriving in the sleek, black SUVs, some with government plates. He raised his eyebrow at all of the musicians, politicians, and actors pouring out of their transportation vehicles and making their way towards the festival grounds. All the Bush boys were there. George Sr., George W., and Jeb were chatting excitedly and laughing as they headed into the forest. All were wearing similarly humiliating and potentially culturally offensive outfits. <laughs> To what culture? Dru Druid culture? Yeah. <laughs> High priests of Moloch, you know? My culture is not your costume. <laughs> All were wearing similarly humiliating and potentially culturally offensive outfits to the Druids. Connery felt like... <laughs> you fucked up the grammar Shut now. Up. Connery felt like a sellout. Eastwood was already off. All right, he said, holding a small printed booklet in his hand. VIP is over that way. What are you waiting for? I want to have at least three beers before cremation of care starts. Let's go! Eastwood sprinted into the forest, beckoning Connery to follow. Connery sighed and jogged after him. I'm too old for this shit, he thought. Eastwood sprinted into the forest, beckoning Connery to follow. Connery sighed and jogged after him. I'm too old for this shit, he thought. The VIP section was a sight to behold. Imagine the world's most prominent celebrities, absolutely shit-faced, bragging to one another about how they fucked over the working class in some shape or form. Disgusting, Connery muttered to himself. His father was a factory worker. He had raised Sean to despise these people, and yet here he was, drinking their overpriced liquor and shaking hands and smiling. Jeb Bush wandered over to Connery and nearly spilled his beer on Connery's robe. I had heard you might be coming, he yelled way too loudly and dangerously close to where Connery drew the line regarding personal space. 
The Rock was fucking awesome movie, man, Jeb sneered. You know that they actually do have those gas rockets? I assumed it was made up, but my dad actually bought a hundred of them from the Russians. Or maybe it was the Chinese, I don't know. He chugged the sloppy foam at the bottom of his plastic glass. He looked back at Connery, his eyes focusing in two different directions. You got any extra smokes on you? Connery placed a protective hand over the pack of Marlboros in his front pocket. Sorry, I bummed this from someone else. Jeb looked extremely disappointed and shuffled away into the crowd, asking others if they had a cigarette he could have. Like clockwork, Eastwood appeared back at Connery's side, double-fisting two large cups of beer. Okay, so here's the deal. Tonight, we'll do creation of care. Tomorrow night, we've got little Friday night at the Grove stage. Or we could do the low jinx at the field circle. Do you have a preference? Not particularly, Connery said. There was a commotion as people began to stream out of the VIP area towards a clearing. Eastwood looked excited. Shit, it's starting. We gotta go. Before Connery could say a word, Eastwood grabbed his arm and the two of them jogged alongside Chris Angel and Jimmy Fallon over towards the main stage. (laughs) There was a giant stone owl towering 50 feet in the air. Torches were lit. Everyone was in strange robes. Connery began to feel uneasy. He noticed long black curtains hanging from the redwood trees surrounding the owl. People were shuffling behind it, but Connery was so far away he he couldn't really see what was going on. Damn, I wish we had gotten a better spot. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Eastwood looked disappointed. He craned his neck to see over a man in front of them, wearing a large goat's head. It was pretty annoying. (laughs) A man wearing a large ornate headdress and long flowing robes was standing at the foot of the owl. He began to speak. The owl is within his leafy temple. Let all who are in the grove be reverent before him. This isn't Macbeth, scoffed Connery. He would be the one to know. Connery had played Macbeth shortly after getting out of the Royal Navy. This wasn't it. Eastwood put an excited hand on Connery's shoulder. Shh, this is the best part. Connery watched as a small person, perhaps a child, was brought in front of the owl. As far as Sean could tell, he was naked. Connery began to sweat. Something wasn't right. The child was stuffed behind the black curtains. There was a prolonged, intense silence. All of a sudden, screams were heard. Connery staggered back. Eastwood, what the hell was going on? Eastwood looked back at him, his eyes completely black. Others began to close (laughs) in around Connery. You are witnessing the power of the almighty Moloch, they chanted in unison. Connery reached into his pocket and pulled out a small blade, which he kept on him at all times. Stay back, you devils! He slashed wildly at the air. Stay back! More were closing in on him. The leader of the ceremony must have keyed into his resistance. He shouted to the crowd, Is there a non-believer among us? Bring him to me! Connery stumbled back. The crowd was closing in. All three bushmen were staggering towards him, eyes black and teeth bared. Connery had to get out of there. He took off through the woods, glancing over his shoulders to see if they were following him. In his haste, he ran head first into a middle-aged man with thinning hair. The man was holding a camcorder. Stay back, Connery yelled, brandishing the knife. Easy there, buddy. Easy there. Now, wait a minute. (laughs) You're not one of them, are you? Who the hell are you? Connery shouted. My name is Alex Jones. I'm a journalist. Infowars.com. Connery had, in fact, heard of him, a right-wing rag website famous for railing against unproven conspiracies. But right now, Alex Jones was Connery's only hope. 
The light of burning torches illuminated the small area of the woods where Jones and Connery huddled. Jones looked up, terrified. A group of men in robes, holding torches, were bounding through the woods in their direction. Run, Jones said. Now! Connery and Jones took <laughs> off through the woods. Jones shouted as they ran. Started in the 1870s, was billed as an artist's retreat, but I've always suspected it was something much more sinister. Guess I was right. Jones produced a small pistol from his waistband, cocked the hammer, and fired three shots into the dark forest at their pursuers. Bow! 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 Connery picked up the pace. We're almost at the entrance, Jones screamed. Sure enough, they emerged from the forest into a waiting caravan of SUVs, the same ones that had dropped them off hours ago. One lone driver stood against one of the vans. Upon seeing the two men emerge from the forest, he drew his weapon and trained it at the two men. Jones seemed frozen. Thinking quickly, Connery gently grabbed Jones' firearm and trained it at the driver. Here's how this is going to go. You're going to drop your weapon and give us the keys to that SUV. If you don't, you will die today. The man was sweating. He shaked. <laughs> He shakily kept his gun trained on Jones and Connery, unsure whether to pull the trigger. Without warning, he fired a shot, blam, narrowly missing Connery and ricocheting off a nearby Redwood. Big mistake. Connery unloaded the full clip into the man's chest. Blam, 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 blam. And he slumped against the side of the SUV, a streak of blood smeared down the car's passenger side. Connery and Jones stood there for a moment. Then Connery spoke. Well, what are you waiting for? We've got a plane to catch. Jones sprung into action, grabbing the keys out of the dead man's pockets. They hopped into the SUV. Jones slammed the key in the ignition, and the engine roared to life. Boy, thank God in heaven that you don't subscribe to this Satanism like the rest of Hollywood. I didn't think there were any good people left. Jones shifted the SUV into gear. Connery nodded his head gravely. It's true. I am the last one. The SUV peeled off down the dirt road, dust flying through the wind as the truck's tires gripped the old country road. A year later... Sean Connery retired from acting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just never disappoint. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> A minor miracle of nature. <laughs> this has been the Q Anon Anonymous podcast. Our goal is to become a self-sustaining indie media platform, but that won't happen unless we're able to put together the equivalent of a couple of salaries. You can help us by going to patreon.com slash QAnon Anonymous and subscribing for five bucks a month. You won't just be supporting us. You'll also get access to more than a dozen premium episodes. Actually, it's, it's like 18 now or something. Plus a new one every week. Thank you. Our Twitters are at QAnon Anonymous, at Travis underscore view. Uh, which, by the way, a lot of people are like, that's how you write a space between Travis and View. Not true. Travis's middle name is underscore. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Uh, at Real Rockatansky and at Julian Field, that's F E E L D. Listener, until next week, may the deep dish bless you and keep you. It's not a conspiracy, it's fact. And now, today's auto cue. Coming up next. Interview with some of the top Q guys. If Q sent you, thank you for coming. You can watch the show on yourvoiceamerica.tv, our website. If you want to support the show financially, you can become a member. Monthly $7.95, annually $79.95. We really appreciate that. If you want to give some other sort of uh, sum without becoming a member, maybe a larger sum, a lot of folks do that, uh, they can go to our GoFundMe page at gofundme.com slash YVA2020. People have been exceptionally generous there, and that keeps us going. All this stuff you see, this ain't cheap, folks. <laughs>